Welcome to episode 55 of The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. On this episode, our guests are Michael Carter and Victoria Prinz. Michael Carter is an artist who lives and works in Los Angeles. I think for me, it's about motivation. Like why do we do the things that we do? Why do we create? What are the motivations for what we create? You know, what, are, what, what are we hoping to get out of the en- all of the energy and oftentimes all of the sacrifice that we put in uh, as creative people? Victoria Prenz is a student of theosophy, an area of study concerning the knowledge of the mysteries of life and nature, the nature of divinity, and the origin and purpose of the universe. What spiritual desire? That looking at mind as dual and desire as dual. So we have a mind that's both non-personal and, and vast as the universe. We also have a, person, a personal mind. And we might say that this moment in human evolution, which is vast, is where we're going from that personal aspect to a deeper aspect. But we have no words or understanding of it because we haven't gotten there yet. We're on that journey. And at the end of the show, we're going to hear a track from L.A. band Moaning, who's got a new record coming out on Sub Pop Records. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. And remember, you can listen to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM. Or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Or you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. Michael Carter and Victoria Prenz, welcome to The People. Yeah, welcome. Guys. Thank you. Thanks. So, Victoria, you are a volunteer. Theosophy Hall in Los Angeles. Can you tell us what Theosophy Hall is and what your involvement with it is? Okay, thank you for asking. Um, What we call the greater theosophical movement, which we call the small T movement, which is the energy in the world to think for oneself, make things better, consider both science, religion, the way the world works in their most positive light, and then also to try to look deeper into all systems with the understanding that there is a Western occult movement. And by occult, I don't mean spooky. I mean all of the teachings of the thinkers of the Middle Ages who often pay the price of their lives for their questioning. And then onward into the sense of how do we think, how do we look at what really is out there in the world from a scientific perspective and find out what's underneath everything. So there's a long tradition, not just in the East, but in the West, but it tends to be forgotten. In the 1800s, there was a Russian woman named Helena Popovna Blavatsky, whose work is still read and studied. We study her writings. We study the writings of William Kwan Judge, who was an Irish-American lawyer. We also study uh, texts that are connected with what they they talked about. Um, We have no authority, no boss, no leadership. We charge no money. It's simply whoever shows up, whoever is interested. And that's what we are. Everybody's welcome to come check us out. I've been 
attending there and studying for a while. Um, Theosophia, divine wisdom, is an eternal reality. It's what the entire universe that we see as a manifested universe of which we are a part consists of. Um, in this particular cycle of history, it's, as always happens, kind of a, a quiet force, you might say. Nothing mysterious or evil about it, as some folks unfortunately think. But look at the heart of Christianity, Buddhism, any, any organized effort. In the very beginning, there is a heart and a soul and a mind considering what it is how it operates, and as humans, what are we here for? Not to gain knowledge, not to escape, but to work for and as this oneness and look at the human condition. People suffer. How do we understand that and work with it so that we can consciously help others? And how did you come to be interested? In um, 1927... Uh, some students of theosophy contributed land and resources to build Theosophy Hall. Before that, in Los Angeles, there was, was and continues to this day, an active group of people who were interested in these ideas. A student of theosophy named Robert Crosby, who was a businessman who was from Canada and studied theosophy in Boston, moved to Southern California, and he and others in Los Angeles in downtown, um, the Metropolitan Building, which is on Broadway, began studying together. After his death, the work continued and the building was built. A gentleman who was one of those kids that comes along that's born to rebel against the very loving and kind yet very religious Catholic family he was born into, was basically told by the church structure at that time to be quiet, no questions asked, no questions wanted. That was that era. He went to college at Santa Clara, and in those days, you could only leave campus if you had written permission. It was a long time ago. <laughs> he worked for the, was, became a reporter for the school newspaper, so he'd get off campus at night. Went to a talk in San Francisco by, given by Robert Crosby. Crosby's ability to connect directly with the questioning mind of the thinking teenager must have been awesome because I know of other families where a rebellious, thoughtful teenager heard him speak and that was it. So you ask why I'm involved. My grandfather, who was the student we're talking about, loved theosophy. He was a relatively well-known, energetic lawyer in Los Angeles. And one day he met a young woman who had been raised, again, in a very dominating uh, Mormon family. 
and basically told, girls don't know anything by her older brothers. Girls don't know anything. Sit down and be quiet. And because he was interested in this young woman, he took her to Theosophy Hall. And years later, she told me that she heard Robert Crosby speak and the man who was to become my grandfather introduced her to Robert Crosby afterwards. And he asked, Robert Crosby asked her, how did you like the talk? And she said to him, I enjoyed it, but I didn't agree with everything you said. Now, you can't see me and I won't do it, but she, he evidently slapped his knee and said, I am so glad I wouldn't have wanted you to have agreed with everything I said. She said that literally changed her life. She'd always been told, you don't know anything, be quiet, don't question. And for someone of his clarity of mind to value that she had reacted in that way was what we would call a game changer. So life goes on, kids get born, things happen. Um, people who were raised in that atmosphere had to do what anybody does, which is to go out in the world and seek their fortune, so to say, learn for themselves. And I think that process is vitally important, whatever system you're raised in. So you're not just accepting it, but really considering it. Well, Michael, what is yeah. your connection to the to theosophy? How do you how do you gain interest in that? Well, I mean, my my interest came directly through studying art history, just like a really boring. You go to an art history class. I mean, I, um, you know, I went to undergrad in a tiny school in Atlanta, and um, you know, the art history teacher there, when we would review, when we would look at medieval artwork, she would say things. You know, she would distinguish the you know images of christian artwork by saying well this is a picture of god the father i guess to like distinguish it from all the other gods or something like that and um and i remember at the time thinking that was very strange and then at a certain point you you would get these um exercises in you know foundation art classes where they would say things like draw an angry line or <laughs> make an abstract painting and you'd, you'd look at those and you'd be like, well, what does that really mean? And of course, there was kind of a right answer. Um, you know, they were looking for certain things. The angry line is supposed to be jagged and red. Um, it, so where does that come from? So, you know, I just kept on asking the same question. Like, you, you know, what is this? Where does this come from? What are the ideas behind these ideas? And at a certain point, you start running into these uh, statements in uh, different art historical texts. Uh, you look at the Bauhaus. You look at the origins of abstraction. Uh, and you see these uh, statements like Kandinsky was a theosophist, Mondrian was a theosophist, with no other explanation. Uh, and I kept on seeing this happen over and over and over again. And um, didn't really think about it at the time. This was sort of pre-early pre internet. It wasn't really easy to look these things up. Um, and at a certain point through a long series of um, you know, changes, I, ended in, I was in Los Angeles. I was in downtown Los Angeles. Um, I went to uh, the FedEx uh, to mail a package, and across the street from the FedEx was this building with a big sign on top that says Theosophy. 
And uh, I was like, that can't possibly be what that is. <laughs> because that's like, you know, not, why, how can that exist? I'm at it's, the FedEx. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so um, it turns out, no, that's exactly what that was. And, um, and, you know, I went home. I looked it up online at this point. And uh, at the time, uh, in, in, there, was a, there was a class that was being run on the Yoga Sutras, right, uh, which is uh, Patanjali. And if, if you've ever really gotten involved in, uh, you know, what we call yoga now, the physical practice, the hatha yoga, um, you, you run into these uh, names pretty quickly. The sort of core of the philosophy that's behind the physical yoga is sort of encapsulated in uh, Patanjali's sutras. So that's what kind of brought me in the door. And, uh, and then it, it was just a question of like, wh what is this? And that was 10 years ago. Uh, and in some ways, uh, it's kind of like uh, I think about the story of people moving to uh, Los Angeles and getting like pulled into these uh, new religious movements, right? Like I, I went in for the stress test, and ten years later, um, you know, I'm, I, I, you're Thetan free. Uh, exactly. Just a, just I have, a country mouse from Georgia. Right. And I have I have no possessions. Um, right. I, you know, like I'm I'm wearing only what's on my back, and my head is shaved, and all that stuff. Um, so, but but it ends up being, you know, but but what there ends up being is this annoying enormous history and this also this alternate history of what happened uh what you know or what kind of sparked off a lot of uh, western art history in the 20th century and then also like what those artists are looking at and that opened up this enormous um still ongoing change and so you know it became the the, the you know the the personal reasons were sort of about uh, you know, I think as an artist, I was really dissatisfied with what I was seeing in a lot of the conversations that were happening at the time, the dialogues that I could participate in as an artist, um, where, you know, um, you know, brought up uh, a liberal, politically left, you know, my mother was a second wave feminist, my dad was involved in uh, progressive political organizing and later on in public housing projects. So like this was my background. And I, I went to art school, I don't know, looking for some other kind of conversation. And when I got there, I found like, oh, wait, this is like, I'm really familiar with all of these conversations. Like this is, you know, this is the same thing that I've been experiencing ever since I was a child. And so I was sort of like, what it really became was about a place like, could I find another, um, another source or another motivation for my work? Uh, and I was like, well, like, well, this is really interesting, right? Like, there is this whole other uh, perspective, this whole other way of thinking about things that has this very strong uh, kind of almost uh, secret at the time art historical relationship. And that's kind of where my uh, launching point was. And what is that relationship, that secret relationship? Um, I mean, I know it's not a secret at this point, uh, but, you know, obviously that there was a generation of artists who were really uh, influenced by these uh, cultural changes. They were interested in, you know, this, the, the, um, the incredibly uh, brief uh, description that uh, Victoria gave trying to talk about when you ask, like, what is theosophy? I think for me, it's about motivation. Like, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we create? What are the motivations for what we create? You know, what are what what are we hoping to get out of the end? All of the energy, and oftentimes all of the sacrifice that we put in uh, as creative people. Um, and so, I think um, you know m my feeling of uh, dissatisfaction with what I was experiencing sort of led me to this this sort of more metaphysical consideration. I think if we, we if we as, we as we continue to talk about it, I think that we can expand on it. 
You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Or you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. And now let's get back to our conversation with Michael Carter and Victoria Prince. We touched on a few things when we were uh, on the break, and uh, we were trying to pick up this idea of what, okay, what is this, what is my interest and what is the connection? What is the sort of, um, what, you know, we, we, we've been talking about the history in the past. Uh, you know, uh, Victoria has talked a lot about uh, her perception of this, uh, this, this thing, this concept called the Theosophical Movement and some of the historical people who were involved in it. Um, and, you know, if you go and really start to dig into the, the history, not only art history, but uh, world history, uh, history of music, um, uh, writing, you know, many other kinds of uh, fields, um, you know, you, you find uh, that, that, that there was this, um, um, this moment where uh, many people were, were very interested in these ideas as well, historically. And, um, and so uh, what, was, what was that about? What was happening? Um, you know, I, I, like I said, I think I sort of touched on this idea of a, a more metaphysical approach. Um, but, w- but what does that even mean? Um, you know, um, I come from my, I come from a very long line, uh, especially on my, on my father's side of the family of, uh, you know, religious workers. Uh, you know, my dad went to seminary, my uncle is a missionary, my grandparents founded a church in their living room. Um, you know, there's Quakers in my uh, family. So there's like this kind of like long uh, tradition there. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not a part of that tradition in a certain sense. And so, um, but what I sort of discovered was that I think that there are uh, reasons for that um, kind of um, family history that sort of go beyond the simple like, well, this is what they did, or this is their job, or uh, this was their fam- their culture or their family. And, um, you know, for me to then realize like somehow my identity is uh, bound up in that. Um, you know, I can't, um, that's my family, that's my history. Um, some part of that continues on with me. Uh, so how can I, in a sense, uh, honor that, but at the same time, I, I'm not that at all. I'm, I'm something else. Um, and so, you know, when what I found, um, it, I found through when, when I met Victoria, when I uh, started, um, um, you know, attending uh, classes at the Theosophy Hall, uh, studying um, the texts and studying Theosophy with Victoria and other students there, I was like, oh, this is, you know, these were people who were struggling with the same kinds of ideas. Uh, they... Um, they um, had the same kinds of perspectives. They realized like oh, the way that we were looking at the world and the way that we were thinking about things, uh, we, we can't continue this, something has to change. And um, you know, they used a very particular language to talk about it and a way of dealing with it. And um, you know, I think to me, it's sort of, we say, well, what, what is a metaphysical approach? I mean, even trying to unpack that word in the 21st century now is enormously complex. You know, it immediately kind of sums up or it evokes these kinds of um, uh, vague, um, you know, kind of like a potpourri of different kinds of world spiritual practices. We have some crystals and we have feathers and, you know, uh, we have a, a Buddha somewhere. And like, like, what is that all about? Like, how did that come into existence? Um, you know, it, it, it's ultimately actually a very specific thing that has a very specific history. And so um, I was like, oh, you know, I, it, this is not like a perfect fit, um, but this is closer to me than anything else that I've seen to this point. 
and even trying to ask questions like, you know, if you look at the, the sweep of what we study art historically, we pretty much um, study the um, output of, um, you know, the, the output of religious art for thousands and thousands of mm -hmm. years, tens of thousands of years. And the idea that somehow like that ended somewhere like in 19, 1890, right? Like it, it's almost like a hubristic to the point of absurdity. Um, you know, clearly like w whatever is happening is more alike to what now is whatever is happening now is more alike to what ha has happened historically than some kind of great break. You know, do we really think that like uh, America of the 20th century has like forever broken off this line that, um, you know, is the is the sort of uh, creative output of um, of uh, artists working through thousands of years? Yeah, is, uh, mo is modernism really that much of a break from you yeah. know everything that came before it in history? Well, you know, <laughs> right? But then also, but the, then this is the real thing. Like, what is the root of modernism? Yeah, because if the root of modernism is is in many ways theosophical. I mean, that's what those artists were looking at, and that's what they were involved in and interested in. So it's like, well, then if you connect that back, it's like, well, modernism really is a, is a return of ideas, right? Like a reconnection to uh, ancient cultures, non-Western cultures, other kinds of ideas. And like that's then when you sort of start to see it not as like uh, we're doing something unprecedented, but we're actually picking up old ideas and understanding how to use them again. And like that... That's, I think, is a very powerful idea. And along with that goes the danger of the commodification of ancient truths. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you can work on your personal well-being mm -hmm. and, oh, that, that's great, I've done that. I've gone to a workshop, I learned about groovy meditation, but I really can just live my life. Mm. The longing of the human heart is real. And you might say that there's different aspects of the human heart that cannot be, are not for sale mm -hmm. and are not simple. Mm -hmm. Now, we look at the great Eastern religions and see all the different layers and histories that each of, each of them has. So it's not that one's better than the other, but... You, Everyone starts dealing with this in their culture in their own way. So you can look at the history of Buddhism, the history of Hinduism. The deep heart is real, but then how not to let the outer history of the personality, you know, I'm the king, I'm going to tell everybody what to do, uh, or this is just so the personality can flourish. What's deeper than the personality? And those are very difficult questions, but they're also very simple questions. Mm -hmm. We used to, at Theosophy Hall, get people who had been raised in very standard Christian families, and the baby died. Why would a loving God take my baby? And they would start then going on, we might, we might say now a, a spiritual questioning. It didn't mean there wasn't an outside God. It meant that they, what the outside religion was telling them was going on wasn't enough for them. Now we get people, generally, this is generalization, who have studied everything and done everything, 
I say somewhat ironically. <laughs> <laughs> so then what? Mm-hmm. And I think it's that then what moment that starts us on a, the same journey, but from a little different perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's what what might call, and, and you and I have talked about this as friends, what happens when we don't look at it, what's, what's it for me? But what's really going on here in some way that we don't really have a word for in English? I mean, it, you know, as a side point, I mean, I think it definitely, as I think, you know, maybe in reflecting something of what uh, Victoria is saying, you know, it also sort of became this context for me of, you know, like I said, like motivation, like, why do we do what we do? Like, why, uh, why do we create what we create? What are the motivations behind what we create? What are we looking for uh, when we make a work? You know, why, why do we put up with the things that we put up um, as, as creative individuals in different ways? And, you know, uh, I think the story that we like and the story that we expect and we accept uh, is, you know, it, it's a lot about um, egotism. It's a desire for personal success. It's a desire for fame. Um, it's a or desire the, for recognition. What? The story of individuality, the yeah. story of the individual. Yeah, the story of the individual, and and was there a way to like uh, kind of subvert that process uh, and and in the in the doing of that act, which is I think necessary to participate in the, you know the the industries that we're involved in in different ways, um, or, you know could I could I channel that energy in some ways not on, not only towards um, you know. Uh, increasing my own uh, the recognition for myself the the opportunities av- that are available for me um, the the story of my individual story of my individuality but in the same time could I also direct that energy back towards other kinds of work um, you know other kinds of effort uh, you know in some ways it's 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 sort of like um, uh, you know even in this process here right uh, I'm able to sort of do do the work that I'm doing. Uh, be influenced by the um, the concepts that I'm learning, by the philosophy that I study, um, but also direct that back to the source. You know that the, these ideas come from someplace and they have a history, um, and and it, I think uh, I think we uh, think there's something to be gained by learning that history. As Michael was speaking, and along with this, that idea that there's a structure to the universe, not outwardly but that there's a functioning. And this is where the basic ideas of karma and reincarnation come in, which you think of the human being and the entire manifested universe that we're part of as sevenfold. So there's a physical body, which is the vehicle. We might say there's an electromagnetic essence that, that works as that physical body is that the life principle, uh, that idea that there's one pervading life force. Then you start thinking of what in English we would call, or not desire as a, in a bad sense, but that almost the, 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 the motivation to continue the, the embodiment. What's spiritual desire? That looking at mind as dual and desire as dual. So we have a mind that's both non-personal and, and vast as the universe. We also have a person, a personal mind. 
And we might say that this moment in human evolution, which is vast, is where we're going from that personal aspect to a deeper aspect, but we have no words or understanding of it because we haven't gotten there yet. We're on that journey. So our spiritual nature, and again, falling back on another language, the we might say the, the Buddhic nature, not Buddha, but Buddhi is a sense of the nameless in manifestation. And then that nameless that's behind everything, that we as humans represent that, but not in the way that our personality thinks of it. You're listening to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. Remember, you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. You can find all our past episodes on iTunes there for free. Or you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. Now back to our conversation with Michael Carter and Victoria Prince. Uh, Vicky, why don't you tell us a little bit about specifically what it means to study at Theosophy Hall? I mean, I think one of the things that's come up over the break is we were talking about, you know, we've uh, we referenced lots of, uh, uh, you know, great spiritual traditions uh, from other cultures. Uh, and so what's, you know, why is it that... Um, you know, what is it that, you know, why is it that we look at those? Why do we study those? Well, I think this brings up a kind of a, a paradox. How not to just be looking at a Buddhist text or a Hindu text or a Christian text. How to take it out of, how not to take it out of its own setting what is the, for instance, when we study Patanjali or the Bhagavad Gita, we concurrently are looking at a commentary written by William Q. Judge, who was deeply knowledgeable and deeply respectful of them, but also was looking at aspects that might not be seen if one's just simply looking and at the, the outer narrative. So j- just a, a scholarly kind of academic approach. Yeah, and nothing wrong with that yeah. in its own place. We study uh, right after uh, lunch on, on Sunday, H.P. Blavatsky's first book, which is called Isis Unveiled. And she said that she wrote it to kind of clear away the underbrush of the Western viewpoint so much always depends on who's there, what they bring to the table, because we get a wonderful wide array um, of, of folks who are there because they're interested, clearly, or they wouldn't be there, but also bring their whole history with them. And it's not necessarily everybody's cup of tea, because again, there isn't a leader, but we'll read the text in both the ISIS class and the Secret Doctrine class and the Key to Theosophy class, that's, or whatever we're studying that's a theosophical work, we'll read a portion of the text and then discuss it. So there's a constant interplay of ideas and exchange. You know, we, uh, we use the phrase sometimes like content-based. Yes. And can you expand on that a little? Well, if you read... 
four or five sentences in The Secret Doctrine. It's not to pick them apart, but to try to focus on what's actually being said here. Because there is a there there. It's not just, hey, hey, these are groovy ideas. There's a specific approach. What's the universe for? How does it work? And how am I part of it? So we do look at, say, the sevenfold nature of, of manifestation. And we also look at different, different ideas um, in Western history and Eastern experience to see what's kind of what's missing and what, let's see, what's a, what's a sound way to look at a text and the secret doctrine is based on a text called the Stanzas of John, which are a description of the manifestation of the universe spiritually and the actual, we might say, development of, of life on this planet. And looking at the actual stanzas and then H.P. Blavatsky's commentary on them can be very broadening and deepening because it gives us a different view of not just the vast history on the globe, which isn't just the immediate history, but that we might say deeper history, but also that we've been part of that, consciously part of it, and everyone else is part of it. And thinking of all the billions of people on the earth now and all the billions of souls out of incarnation who will come back into incarnation, I think, again, gives us a different perspective. Vicky has kind of pointed out a lot of very specific um, books and texts and histories uh, that are involved. And I, I think it's very, it's really challenging to understand the significance of a lot of these. There's, there is a, an, uh, this is a, an enormous history. It's uh, connected to this. It's a definitely sort of a, a living history that's changing. You know, I think one of the things that um, you, you know, what, what uh, an interested person will discover when they start to look at this is, you know, this is a it's a complex history. You know, when you when you look at um, when you look at what's what's being talked about, the context and situation of it, you know, you you see that this is this is a thing that is influenced potentially, you know, the best of what we saw in the last century and some of the worst of what we saw in the last century. And, you know, I, so so what does that mean? You know, I think we we're you know, trying to kind of get back to why, why is this significant? Why, why this now again? And, you know, I what I see that this, this sort of um, echo, an echo of what this, these events that happened maybe say a hundred years ago and now is that, you know, these, uh, these books, these ideas, these people, they're working in a time when, when the, the thinking in their culture has become very rigid. And um, you know it's it's split into very 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 specific camps, and and everyone is, uh, you know, th everyone is very convinced of their particular view of the world, and I feel like the 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 approach that Vicky is talking about through these different texts is kind of a way of uh, how do I kind of um, uh, change my understanding of uh, my own view of the world? How do I kind of let go of some of the more dogmatic ways that I'm thinking? 
you know, we, we're in a time now in, in American culture uh, where we seem to have really, um, you know, split into this binary of thought, you know, we have, that we have a, an ideology of the left, an ideology of the right, and, um, and you're either on one side or the other side, and there's no, there's no place else to go. And, um, and I feel like um, the reason that um, these ideas were attractive to artists and uh, other folks uh, a century ago and why they're now becoming interesting again is because it's all about uh, how do you get out of that kind of thinking? Uh, how do you get out of that kind of uh, binary that you've created? Um, and, you know, and also that the realization that this kind of a polarization that happens is something that's actually really regular. It happens over and over and over again. And that there, uh, the, the, the issues that we're facing, the kind of struggles that we're facing as a culture and as a people, th this is not the first time that we've experienced these things. Um, and, and looking at this history, looking at these uh, ideas, looking at the texts that Victoria is talking about uh, is a kind of a way to access some of that thinking access ideas, you know, one of the things that I see the kind of uh, history of these, of this thought and uh, the sort of theosophical approach is that if you look at contemporary culture, you, you see that it, it appears on both the left and the right. Uh, these ideas are influencing the full spectrum uh, in different ways. And so what does that mean if we're now maybe talking about something that is a, a substrata, right? Or is it's, uh, it's growing up um, in between this sort of the worldviews that we have now? Um, you know, one of the things I know is that um, whatever the future holds, um, it's, it's, you know, wherever we end up in a hundred years from now, it's going to look really different from today. Uh, the what we think, um, the, the way of the world that we live in, uh, it's going to be as dramatically changed as uh, it, it already has been in the past hundred years. More so, maybe. Even. Yeah, mm -hmm. maybe even Absolutely. more so. So what is like... Um, what is the software? What is the, the way of thinking? What is the ideological approach that can carry us through that kind of time? Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying here that everybody uh, should come down to Theosophy Hall and, uh, <laughs> and start doing this and it's right for everybody. Um, but um, I think that we, we as, a, as a culture, as individuals, as a culture creators, uh, we should start asking those kinds of questions of ourselves. Uh, and what, and do we, do we not want to because of the, like the plurality or the multiplicity uh, of that way of thinking is like, is a lot scarier than a binary way of thinking? Is that, I mean, probably that's yeah. part of it. And along with that too, and Blavatsky is very clear about this. She said, the deeper you go in whatever culture, whatever teaching, that you're that you you were raised with or you think about or you're approaching the deeper you go there's a oneness to everything mm -hmm. so how to look at it not as either or but that deep oneness that's behind and underneath so it's not necessarily the way we've been educated to think where we need that broad landscape but sometimes in our own lives we suffer enormous loss, enormous pain. It's a necessary experience not to cling to it and say, oh good, I get to suffer now, but to go deeper and realize that there's forces at work given our past choices. And this is a new opportunity to gain not just knowledge and experience, but the wisdom to lead a deeper life. 
Um, you know, I'd like to ask the host the question based on just the um, what Vicky has brought up here. She brought up this word wisdom, uh, which is, I think, a very is an interesting phrase. I mean, um, Ben, like, what does that word mean to you? Oh, well, I was brought up Southern Baptist, so. I yeah. No, no, please tell me. I don't understand what that means. How does that, what does that mean Bless in terms your of wisdom? Yeah. Yeah. Bless your heart. I'm still alive. I'm still here. Yeah. Um, you know, it means something very different to me now than it did uh, when I was being brought up in that way. Well, when I was being brought up that way, it was like words written on a golden tablet in the sky that never move, you know, that an old white dude with a beard uh, gave to another old white dude with a beard <laughs> came down a mountain and yeah. those are rules that we live by that's wisdom but um, so w wisdom is the Ten Commandments yeah right <laughs> um, but to me now it's a little more like the that idea is more of like a collection like a, an evolving collection of ideas that you get to pick and choose from you know depending on what use value they have for you um, that you know and some some of those ideas are new some of them are old Um but yeah, it's a, it's a more, it's a less defined thing for me now. It's like, this, which is why I'm having a hard time defining no, it. it. It's, a, it's a challenging <laughs> yeah. word. That's yeah. why I'm interested yeah. in hearing what, and then what yeah. about you, Matt? Well, because you said Southern Baptist. I was yeah. raised like, you know, Midwestern Presbyterian. Yeah. So cool churches. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool like 60s, 70s design churches. Great. Um, but uh, I mean, I think wisdom for me, I think similarly somehow to you it was kind of something that was in uh books that had been written and were on shelves and it wasn't necessarily a religious thing but it was like you know books and you you know you read them and then you get wisdom and yeah and i think but i think that over time like i, I think that it's like a i think i've uh, it, it's more of a like a living thing or something there's like a i think wisdom is a shared entity that lives evolves and hopefully hopefully some of us momentarily partake from and within and and participate in what we're both saying as far as our our, our past experience like our original experience with the idea of wisdom is that we think of it more now as something that goes uh, in different directions it doesn't just come from one place like mm -hmm. down to us yeah it, it's living okay. and evolving right yeah and it gets passed back and forth between humans like uh mediated between humans not mediated through i guess it could be mediated through a, a divine power if that's your cup of tea but it doesn't necessarily have to be because I, like that divinity has no place in my life um and I, I would give another example from a very practical standpoint like uh you know it's not something that you when you first try to make a chair that that you can even if somebody came up and said here's a good way to make a chair you're not you have to actually make the chair like 20 times over and then you'll get what the guy told you the first time you were trying to make a chair. Yeah. And I think like wisdom to me is kind of like that. Yeah. Like very directly practical in that way. It's like, and somehow you can't actually receive it. I, I, it can't just be received. It has to be like learned. I, I, I'm really fascinated by the idea that there is um, knowledge. There is like a, you know, a theory of epistemology, right? Where like um, that, uh, that you cannot, uh, communicate verbally you cannot write it down you cannot show it to somebody that there is perhaps like a whole world of real um uh, things to know that there is some other way that they can be communicated not through the the methods that we are familiar with 
and, and so if, so what is that? Does that actually exist? I mean, you're talking about something that when you talk about this idea of uh, the chair and passing on these ideas, right? It's like you can tell somebody exactly what they need to do, but they won't be able to do it. So what, there is something that comes through actual experience that's non-communicable, um, but yet is real. Yeah. And like that's, you know, what is that thing? Yeah, and before we get too far away, Victoria, can you just can you give us an answer to that question? Oh for wow, you? no, I'm just enjoying listening to, oh. to all of this. It's like, oh wow, I never thought of it that way. That's the wonderful thing that happens. I think we've in in a in a lovely way made a tiny little theosophy class right here because hearing you, all three of you, opened up parts of my mind that that resonate. So I can sit home and read any of the textbooks by myself, but the act of being together, that mar marvelous aha moment comes from hearing another human being who's experienced something, thought about it, and then can say something. Not in a, oh, I'm important. None, not, none of you has said, oh, I'm important or oh, I'm wise. But you've unconsciously given this what happens when i wish i had a word for it but it's the best of, of being a human being and i'm grateful i'm thinking oh i can i can think that way the chair making the chair it may not be a beautiful chair but it could be useful it's a it's a tool there are tools what are the tools to learn theosophy there isn't any right way or wrong way Everybody in a class is going to have, as, as the four of us do, each of us has a whole different history in, in every possible way. So each of us brings something that's of value. And thinking that that's what humans do. I, I always liken it, or I've heard it likened, and it's not about me, to sitting around the campfire, which we've been doing for millennium. We weren't just sitting around listening to the big guy talk or complaining about the day. We would, at some point, somebody would tell a story. There would be some substance, and then there would be, oh, I never thought of it that way. Or, oh, that's a different, that's useful. I can get through the day with that. It's because that's really the, the challenge to how do, we, how do we lead a life? How do we give and do what we have to do? And I think that this 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 there there <laughs> that we've just done is 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 really a very deep and beautiful part of just being a human being. Agreed. Well, Michael and Victoria, thanks for being on the panel. Yeah, thank you so oh, much. Thank, thank you, you so much. It's been I, I've learned a lot. Thank you very much and the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I really appreciate the chance to come on the show. You've been listening to the people on K Chung, sixteen thirty AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember to go to iTunes. You can find us there by searching for The People Radio, or you can just go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. And you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Stitcher and SoundCloud. And there on SoundCloud, you can find all our past episodes as well as various other recordings and other good things. And you can find us on Facebook, of course, and you should like us on Facebook. Yes, you should. Uh, our theme music, as always, is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. And we're going to go out now with a song from L.A. band Moaning. And they've got a new album coming out very soon on Sub Pop Records. So you should keep an eye out for that. 
and you should check them out on subpop.com. Uh, the name of the track is the same. <laughs>